Be subject. Still, I don't know about you. Has the shiver gone away yet every time you see that phrase? Be subject. Has God really said? And how many times have you asked yourself now, has he really said what this seems to say here? Be subject to an emperor? Hold up. Be subject to every human institution. The emperor as supreme. Nero as supreme. Now, is God really saying that? Governors who have been sent. Now, it's interesting here where it says has been sent by him. And it's, it's tricky. Does this mean governors that have been sent from the emperor? That would make sense because that's the way the Roman government was structured at the time uh, that this was written. That there were those who the Caesar would send out into the different regions who served on his behalf. And they served with the full power and authority of the Caesar. Or is he talking about as the governors who are sent out by God? It's not clear here. Now, we do know from Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writing about the same time as this letter, who was also probably writing while Nero was emperor, um, says that every government that exists has been put there by God. Now let that sink in. There is no government that exists that is not there because God wants it. Every government that is in place throughout history, whether it is an emperor, whether it is the govern, government of, of uh, those with consent, whether it's a democratic republic, whether it's a Marxist regime, whether it's communist, socialist, an oligarchy, we can go through all the list, right? Well, actually, I can't because I don't know all of them, but... It doesn't matter what government is in place. The government is there is the government that God wants. And it is the government that God wants because that is the way he manifests his sovereignty in moving history to the appointed ends that he has. One of the things that's been difficult here in 1 Peter as we have been looking at this is that the first uh, is that Peter's interests here are not in trying to help us understand a comprehensive system of how Christians should relate to human governments. That's not what's going on here. He's not giving us theories for government. He's not advocating for one system of government or, or over another. He's not trying to tell us, uh, by the way that to be subject to Nero as the emperor, as supreme, means that you agree with him. It doesn't mean that Nero is right. It doesn't mean Nero is just. It doesn't mean what Nero, whatever Nero says is correct. There is nothing being stated here, either theoretically or practically, 
to explain to us theoretically or practically a comprehensive system of government and how private citizens relate. What he is doing and what he has been hammering on us, as I have attempted to show, is that his interests has to do with the witness of the church. How is the outside world, including the government, how does it perceive the church? Last week I mentioned, or I think several weeks I have mentioned, that what Peter is doing here is pressing upon us the importance of the evangelistic and apologetic mission of the church. Evangelistic meaning the privilege we have of sharing Christ with the world. The sharing of Christ so far right here has been emphasized with regards to behavior. In chapter 3, we're going to get to words. So it's not one or the other. You know, there's been these debates for years now of, well, what's really effective is lifestyle evangelization, evangelization where just show them Jesus and people will come to know Jesus. Well, we should show them Jesus. I, I hope that's been clearly articulated. But the showing of Jesus will lead to the description of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus, the sharing of Jesus. And so the two go together. The words he'll start talking about in chapter 3. Right now, he's talking about, is the church living in such a way that either attracts on the basis of how we are living or pushes people away? Because notice what he says. The one who does good, it shuts the mouths of the evildoers, and it puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, he is concerned about how people outside of the church is perceiving the church. And we know, we know that for the first few hundred years, of the church after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the overwhelming amount of written material that we have right now was written from uh, uh, men within the church trying to help people outside of the church realize that the church was not an external threat to Caesar or to his kingdom. Let me put it another way. The church is not to be revolutionary. The calling of the church is not to redo the structures that are in place. What Peter is saying is work within the structures in such a way that you are presenting God's goodness in Christ so that people see it. Citizenship in the Roman Empire, by the way, at the point in which he's writing, speaking about, you know, acknowledging the emperor as supreme, 
Rome at this point had not been an empire very long. The overwhelming amount of time in the history of Rome is that it was a republic. There was voting. There was citizenship. There was rights. Now, it's not like us today. I don't want to present the wrong thing. But it was a republic. And there was voting. There was representation in government. And with Julius Caesar, there was a transition. And when they put him to death, guess what? It did not stop the march of the empire. And so Augustus, following him, was able to fully bring in what Caesar started. When you get to Nero, we're just talking a few decades. How easy would it have been for Peter to say, guess what, guys? Remember back, remember back when Rome was a republic? And there wasn't such centralized power and authority. Remember when things didn't seem to be so oppressive? When you had more of a voice? When there was representation? Do you remember those days? Well, with Jesus Christ, what we should do is help take the, Repu- to help take the empire back to the republic. He doesn't say that. What he says is take the existing structures and work within it. And do so as to be a good witness to those who are on the outside. Evangelism, but also apologetics. Giving a defense and a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15. Once again, we'll get to that more specifically as we get there. But the apologetical value in the early decades, in the first few hundred years of the church was in men writing to correct all of the false narratives that existed in the Roman Empire about what the church was. Well, that group of people, they get together in the privacy of some dark place where they don't allow people who are outside of their group to be there. And what we're told is that they eat the body and they drink the blood of this man named Jesus Christ. The early church were known as cannibals. Now, were they cannibals? No. But if you want to discredit a group, what's one of the best ways to do so? Well, call them a bunch of cannibals, right? No one wants, I mean, even wicked, evil Romans know that we shouldn't be eating people. But there were false narratives that existed about the church that needed to be dealt with. And one of the things that Peter is saying here is that the church is to exist within the world, relating to government, in such a way that we minimize those false narratives. And that our lives are by in and of themselves corrections to the false rumors. Christians should be the best citizens of any system in which they live. Now, I'm telling you, that is hard for us. Has God really said this? Isn't it interesting that 
at the very beginning of creation. When faced with the covenant opportunity to voluntarily submit to God and receive everlasting life, that the question that got Adam and Eve off was the question, has God really said? And beloved, ever since then, we have struggled with submission. Isn't it interesting that for us um, as American believers, we live and breathe the air of the American ethos of government by consent, that the very origins of our country are in revolution, where there were deep disagreements, by the way, even among Christians about what the right critique of the British abuses were and what the right answer or response was to do in light of them. Even among reformed Christians, there was not agreement on how to respond. There are two very big um, there are two, um, how do I say this, very strong, intellectually gifted, talented Presbyterian men that went toe-to-toe at the Continental Congress about whether or not revolution was the right response in light of a Calvinist worldview. One of those names you know because he's the one that won. John Witherspoon, Presbyterian minister, argued vehemently for revolution. The other name you probably don't know. Ironically, he was a representative from the state of Georgia, and that was Reverend John Zubley. There have been disagreements among Americans going back to the very beginning. And guess what? That's okay. And by the way, I don't have any answers, so please don't ask me. I don't have a, a position. What I can tell you is I certainly have enjoyed growing up in America, and I certainly have enjoyed the rights and privileges that have come with that, as well as the responsibilities that come with that. But what Peter is trying to help us to understand is that our rights and privileges as citizens of the heavenly places, come from the completed work of Jesus Christ. And there is no Caesar. There is no president. There is no governor. There is no senate that can either guarantee nor take away anything that is already ours in the eternal inheritance to which we have been born again in Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. So when are we not to be subject? It is interesting. Someone asked me recently, well, how are you going to answer that question from 1 Peter? Because 1 Peter seems to be so clearly only articulating this clear directive to be subject. Well, I introduced it the very first time we began looking at this passage. 
if you recall, what I said from the very beginning here is that in order for us to do this well, we absolutely have to cultivate the kingship of Jesus Christ within our lives because the subjection that we are to give to the earthly government is a subjection that we are giving to Jesus Christ. God has established the government, and God has told us, for my sake, obey it. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the government is always right. It doesn't mean that the government is always good. It doesn't mean that the government always does what we are told here in summary fashion, what governments should do, right? They're supposed to punish evil and reward good. It doesn't mean that, we, that, we, um, that whatever the government says is right. And it certainly doesn't mean that government is infallible. What it does mean, however, here in the text, is that we are always to obey Jesus Christ and Christ asks us to obey earthly governments, even if it's not the right kind of government, even if we don't agree with the government, even if we do not consent with the government, even if it's not good, or even when the government is not consistent, or if the government is good and gentle, and certainly not only if the government reflects God's truth, goodness, and beauty. Peter even says here, even when it is unjust. Why? Because Christ has ordained this government. Now that kind of sounds like, well, hold up, then there really isn't a place for us not to to go against the government. Well, if we are to obey God in all things, as our supreme authority and we obey the earthly government as it sits underneath the authority of Jesus Christ, there are two implications there for us. And one implication is this. When Christ and the earthly government come into conflict, who wins? Christ. Oh, there we Hey! A little interaction. I know that we're Presbyterians, but we can talk during this time. Christ is always supreme. And so in the history, especially of the Reformed worldview, one of the things that we have taught is this. You obey Christ and you obey the government. However, if the government is compelling you to do something that God forbids, you don't do it. And if the government is forbidding you to do something that God commands, you do it anyway. Because you see how that works? By Peter reminding us that the authority of the earthly government works and functions under the umbrella of the lordship of Jesus Christ, he is built into this, even though, like I said, he's not trying to give a comprehensive system here. He is trying to, he's trying to get us to focus on the right disposition of our hearts. 
and the right dispositions of our hearts are this. Always serve Jesus Christ first and foremost and serve earthly governments as an expression of your service to the Lordship of Christ and do that even when it's inconvenient, even if it's unjust in terms of you receiving that, that, that unjust um, um, uh, difficulty. Do it unless the government is asking you to contradict the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, do this because the testimony and witness of the church is at stake. A well-known conservative evangelical pastor said, but I don't like, in, in talking about Christians and government, he says, I hear people saying, I don't like what is going on in our country. The pastor says, well, guess what? Neither does God. And God will determine the form of government that suits his purposes. We silence the critics when we do what is right. You know, I'm afraid that evangelical Christianity lives on the edge of forfeiting its witness. Oh, we haven't started a revolution yet in the streets, but there is coming from evangelical Christians, and there has been for some time an endless abusive harangue at the government, at the president, at the Congress, the Senate, the leaders of the state, and even local leaders. Our responsibility, no matter what the nature of the government, is to live a quiet and peaceful life which will gain for us, as Paul says, a good reputation, and Peter says it will silence the mouths of those who criticize us. So, he goes on to say, when we don't live a quiet, tranquil, peaceful life with a submissive attitude toward those over us and pray for their salvation, we forfeit our testimony. The worst possible thing, he goes on to say, that can happen to believing Christians is for the government authorities to perceive them as their enemies. The last thing that you want to do is turn the governing officials against you. That was John MacArthur. And if you know anything about what is going on right now, John MacArthur is not living up to his own preaching. And by the way, don't do this to me because every sermon I don't live up to. The point here is not a gotcha. The point here is this. Beloved, this is hard. And this is difficult. And we're not going to get it perfectly right. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do, do some things well and other things we're going to get in our own way. We do know that to be faithful to what Peter is telling us here, it doesn't mean that we check our brains at the door. And it doesn't mean that we become naive and just go along to get along. What he says 
is voluntarily submit, knowingly, unless the government is compelling you to contradict Christ. The tricky thing right now that is going on for churches across the country, especially um, in certain states like California, is how do we respond to the different levels that we are seeing right now of what is being asked of the church. Now, we have been blessed to be here in Georgia, have we not? We have not had to make some of the same decisions that churches in other parts of the country are having to make. And I've said to our session, I think I've said it to you, I'm glad we haven't been forced into those same questions because I probably wouldn't respond very well. Even preaching First Peter, I probably wouldn't respond um, with a submissive, quiet, tranquil attitude. I want us to meet. I want us to be in person, together, because that's what we are as a covenant community. It is a gathered body. That's what an ecclesia is, a church. It is a group that have been called out of one thing and called into another. And when we don't meet together physically, it is very difficult, not only because it is a contradiction to what we are, but because it does have negative effects and weakening effects. For the churches in California, the real difficulty has been for the mega churches. Churches like us in California, by the way, are not struggling with their decision making because they've continued to do things in a way that fits what the government has asked. It's the mega churches that are struggling because they are too big. They cannot fit inside a space in a way that corresponds to what the government has asked. What makes it really difficult is this. The state of California has not told churches you're not allowed to worship. But it certainly has laid down some directives that make it difficult for the bigger churches to do, to, to meet together in person, especially trying to meet inside. And it, was, it is because of that reason that I have not formed an opinion. And why I have not said things from this pulpit, either for or against what's going on out there. Because I think it's a judgment call right now. I personally do not see that the state of California is compelling churches to contradict Christ. But I do understand that some people take it that way. And so because it is not clear, I'm, I think that posture that Peter is describing for us here in chapter 2 helps us. Because the posture 
that he presents to us is this. When you obey government, or if it is one of those times when you don't, either way, what you present to the world is a patient, suffering Christ. What you present to a world is a humble Christ who, though he was eternal God, voluntarily placed himself under the directives of human leaders. And he suffered. What is presented to us, beloved, is humble, sacrificial love. Not John Wayne, I'm going to put it in your face that I think you're wrong. These are hard words. And I hope that what you see is that this is not easy. It is not simplistic. And what that I hope should do is provide us a humility to entrust ourselves to God. And when we have to make judgment calls, let's make sure that our judgment call is emphasizing humility, patience, and trust in our Father, and not our personal preferences, where we are really fighting for our own Christian self-interests, but doing so in the name of constitutional freedoms. This is hard stuff, guys. And like I said last week, I have been very grateful for the way that our congregation is responding to these complicated, difficult things. Because I know we have people who are very supportive of what is happening out in California, um, and there are others who are not as excited or supportive. I know that we have people who think that it is not a good thing to wear a mask, and we have other people who think that it is. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. And what I do think I have seen in us is though we do have some opinions, I think what I have been saying is the humility and patience of Christ. Not perfectly, and certainly not in me, but I do think I'm seeing that in you, and I really want you to be encouraged by that. I really want you to, to see that in entrusting yourselves to God in Christ, that I think we have set ourselves up to continue to promote a good witness for Jesus Christ in the midst of a very difficult and complicated situation. We don't have answers on the medicine. We don't have answers on real uh, intentions. We don't have any of the details about how to respond to what is going on right now on the basis of what is going on out there. What we do have are the words of Jesus Christ through Peter. 
that we should be subject. Unless the lower governing authority asks us to contradict our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, we need your wisdom. And we need your patience. And we need the perspective of the heavenly places. And so grant that to us. So that we will not be quick to look for a way out of voluntary submission. But instead that we would be, we would be quick to entrust ourselves to you regardless of things are going the way that we like and appreciate and agree with or not. And Father, like Jesus Christ, help us to be willing to love sacrificially to help others out. Your word here is not telling us to be private and to keep our faith to ourselves. It is not telling us to disengage. But it is encouraging us not to engage for our own self-interest, but certainly to engage for the interests of those who need Jesus Christ. And so help us as we continue to try to live wisely as we hope and pray toward the end of this pandemic that we would not grow tired, that we would not grow weary, and that we would not give in to the passions of our flesh that wage war against our souls, but that we would be renewed in the humility and patience of Christ today to go out into this world and to be a presentation of hope. Oh Lord, help us to cultivate the hope that we have so that we can be expressions of that hope to those who have it not. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.